been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve, coming at you once again with Dr. Alan Femister. He's on remote, but we're still going to talk about the Council of Vienne. Doctor, welcome back. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. No problem. We, everyone, everyone's loving the series, by the way. Thank you again, as always, for doing this. Nice haircut, by the way. Oh, thanks, yes. Finally, my wife took the shears to me. Um, uh, I, um, yeah, so the Council of Vienne, um, 1311 to 1312. Um, it's uh, there's um, what number ecumenical council is it? I suppose it's the fourteenth. Is that right? I hope I'm not getting the numbers wrong. I yet. lost count anyway, after five. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I lost count after five. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, so um, it's uh, held in France. It's uh, I think I looked at the map. I think it's very slightly less northwest than Lyon, so. It's moved slightly further back towards uh, the centre of the Mediterranean, but uh, um, uh, it's uh, it's not a terror, not an edifying council. I'm afraid the rest of the councils for the for the rest of the Middle Ages, with the exception of the Council of Florence, they're not they're not necessarily boring, but they're not they're not very infusing. Um, uh, the uh, they all represent some disaster or other, and uh, so this is this is one of the disasters. I mean, it does some good things on the way, but uh, yeah. So, um, uh, in 1291, um, the city of Acre, I think we mentioned last time, uh, fell to Islam, and that was the last stronghold of the uh, of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, they hadn't had Jerusalem um, for a while. Uh, remember, they, they rented it back under the dubious auspices of the Emperor Frederick II, we talked about last time. But uh, it was taken back again um, uh, by Islam shortly after that, um, as was predictable, hence the annoyance of the of the barons of the Kingdom of Jerusalem at Frederick II's antics. Um, and uh, they clung on to less and less of the Holy Land until eventually they were driven out in 1291 and that was kind of it really except that the the, the kingdom of the cyprus was still in the possession of the king of jerusalem the king of cyprus was also the titular kingdom king of jerusalem but uh it was all all pretty depressing and and there'd been no really successful crusading action um that made a significant impact over the course of the 13th century uh, Saint Louis the Ninth had um, made some valiant attempts, but they'd all sort of run aground in one way or another. And um, so this was a, a really big downer for Christendom and a big downer for the uh, papacy, because the popes were um, a, a big part of their prestige and their claim to leadership over Christendom was the Crusades and the success of the First Crusade, and um, and now that was all kind of gone. So. We already talked last time about how there'd been this decline, greater and greater venality and 
the sort of bureaucratic sclerosis um, surrounding the Holy See and um, and moral decline among the cardinals and now the last territory on the mainland of, of the Holy Land was lost and um, and I think we also talked about last time the fact that the popes have been fighting this furious battle with the Western emperors over um, who were the real leaders of Christendom and that had reached a, a fever pitch in the reign of Frederick II and after Frederick II's death in 1250 they sort of hounded his dynasty to destruction and in fact there was no um, no uh, emperor um, crowned by the Pope or crowned in Rome until 1312 so from the death of of Frederick II who died you know deposed excommunicate anyway but from the death of Frederick II until the coronation of the Emperor Henry the seventh there was no one tech in 1312 there was technically no one who was Holy Roman Emperor and in fact by the time Henry the seventh was crowned um, in in Rome he was crowned by three cardinals because the popes weren't in Rome for reasons that we'll get to and wouldn't be back to Rome for another half a century plus after that uh, coronation so um, which is all another serious sign of the general deterioration mm -hmm. so this um, uh, and the problem the problem this created this sort of breaking and and the Emperor Henry VII didn't didn't he was Dante was very excited about him thought he was going to restore the Empire as a big deal but it, nothing really came of it and um, so the Empire was kind of broken as a, a real any as an entity or institution with any real chance of leading Christendom it was now a sort of pretty weak monarchy of Germany with a fancy and rather incongruous title about being Roman Emperor um, it didn't really it's it's its claim to leadership in Christendom was now was now almost a dead letter now it, it some chance of that came back in the 16th century when um, the the king of Spain was elected Holy Roman Emperor and he he was immensely powerful um, although it didn't work out because of Protestantism but anyway so um, so and the big problem with having broken the Empire as an institution is that the popes had a real control over the Empire it was it was built into the Romanness of Christendom and the papal office and all that kind of stuff so the very reasons that made it a threat to the popes claimed universal leadership of Christendom also made it susceptible of control uh, by the popes to some degree and also emphasized that the universal reality of Christendom was the fundamental sort of focus of loyalty for Western Latins and um, and and so by breaking the Empire in that way the popes had actually unleashed the little little not that little but the local monarchies um, to become much more powerful and problematic and I, and I don't think they properly appreciated how dangerous that was going to be. Okay so one of the consequences of the moral panic created by the fall of Acre was uh, that the Cardinals decided to elect this hermit um, as the Pope. They thought well you know if we just find this really holy guy who's got nothing to do with um, who's got nothing to do with um, 
the Holy See and it, its its bureaucratic structures and and its corruption, then then somehow everything will be okay because their understanding was somebody must have sinned. I mean, this is a rather Old Testament understanding, but nevertheless, somebody must have sinned because we've you know we've lost the Holy Land, we've lost Jerusalem, now we've lost Acre, we've got no footing left there. We've got to do something. Um, and so they elect this poor fellow, and he's he's utterly miserable. He doesn't know what to do. He's being manipulated, uh, left, right, and centre. Um, and he only he only reigns as pope from July to December 1294. And um, and 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 it's it's clearly a skidding away to disaster. And so the he is persuaded to abdicate. Now this has a lot of contemporary resonance. Papal abdications can cause a certain amount of confusion, and uh, there's nah, an obvious temptation. No, none of that, right? <laughs> yeah, there's an obvious temptation of people who aren't happy with the new regime, for whether for good or bad reasons, to cast dispersions on the validity of the abdication. Um, uh, I think Celestine V thought he was going to be able to go home and and get back to being a hermit. And instead, his successor Boniface VIII had him locked up straight away, and he didn't last very long after his abdication. Uh, he's canonised as a saint, in fact. Um, and uh, Benedict XVI went to visit his shrine uh, um, at least once, anyway, um, and made some strange sort of symbolic actions that hinted towards his possible interest in abdicating himself um, uh, during his papacy. Um, uh, what their significance was, we, we never really know. Um, but um, anyway, so Boniface VIII succeeded uh, Celestine V, and he was kind of completely the opposite end of the spectrum. He was very much a sort of, you know, curial politician with a strong sense of the, the rights of the papacy, quite shouty but he didn't really understand um, how much more limited the power of the papacy had become I mean whether he's to be blamed for that or not uh, is, is is not really clear lots of things lots of things are alleged against him because his pontificate um, became sort of wrapped up in such a storm of, of controversy um, and he had so many people who hated him uh, but it's it's hard to tell which bits are invented and which bits aren't. So like, there's a legend that, you know, when they realised that Celestine V was a bit of a disaster, that they they kind of you know concealed some kind of sort of voice trumpet somewhere in Celestine V's bedroom, uh, so that Boniface VIII could go. He wasn't yet Boniface VIII could go. Um, Celestine, Celestine, the Lord speaks. It's time to abdicate. <laughs> <laughs> and try and persuade him to go quietly. Don't you ain't by getting any ideas out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this could be, you know, one of these nasty stories made up about him by his enemies. And there was a big attempt to try and claim that Boniface had not been validly elected Pope later on. So, um, and uh, there's a story that he um, that he uh, went to um, when one of the the second of the Habsburgs to be elected emperor who never actually managed to get crowned some of his representatives came to um, were sent to the Pope to try and you know get the papal blessing for the newly elected German king and emperor-elect and um, and they're supposed to be ushered into his audience chamber and he's supposed to have been sitting there um, 
enthroned with the imperial regalia himself. This is Boniface VIII, and he's supposed to have said, you know, I am the emperor, I am Caesar, and all sort of. But again, who knows? It could be another one of these nasty things made up to to um, disparage the poor fellow. Um, and um, yeah, he uh, he actually instituted the first holy year in 1300, um, which seems to have been a bit of a money-making endeavour. But anyway, we'll get to uh, get to get to why that was. So um, the reason why he, he became involved in so much controversy so quickly was because um, uh, the kings of France and England, uh, Philip the Fourth of France and Edward the First of England. Edward the First of England is is the king and Braveheart. Um, uh, Braveheart is not to be trusted at all as a historical source, but Edward the First was quite a kind of formidable chap um, in that respect. <laughs> the, people um, are people are now rending their garments. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they were at war, as was often the case, and um, and they both uh, were short of cash, and they wanted to raise money from taxing the church. And uh, it had been defined by a couple of previous ecumenical councils, and it had been a source of controversy here and there over the high Middle Ages, but one on which the Pope had generally come out on top, um, albeit with a lot of fighting over it, um, that uh, you can't seize um, the property of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Um, the, 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 the temporal power basically doesn't have that kind of jurisdiction. Now, there's a little bit of a grey area where some of it is, is the stuff that's kind of kind of not exactly part of the spiritual mission of the church, not attached to its spiritual functions, but yeah, it's not clear whether or not there might be some things which do fall uncomplicatedly under the jurisdiction of the of the temporal power and its power to tax and some things that might not. But in general, um, you've got to understand that, the, that, 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 that because the medieval conception was of one society, the church, in which there was the temporal order run by the laity and the spiritual order run by the um, the ecclesiastical hierarchy, the bishops and the Pope. Um, it was, to be a cleric was like having diplomatic plates on your car, you know, you were sort of immune from the legal system that applied to the laity and you could, for certain crimes, be stripped of your clerical status and, and handed over to the, to the uh, temporal power for prosecution, but that was a decision that lay in the hands of the, of the spiritual power and of the church courts and so in the same way, the property had this kind of immunity. And so to start taxing the church's property or, or the property of the hierarchy without, um, without being given special permission to do so by the Holy See was to question that view of the world and question the immunity and the sovereign nature of the ecclesiastical power relative to the lay power. And um, so Boniface VIII reacts very strongly against this and he issues this bull called Clericis Laicos um, in uh, 1296, in which he uh, he denounces this uh, these actions, and it's particularly vexatious to the King of France. I think because the King of France thinks that there might be more chance of it succeeding, whereas I think Edward the First might think that he's he could probably get away he's far enough away. The English state is sufficiently centralised that he can probably get away with kind of ignoring these measures if he if he wants to but philip the fourth is is furious the bull itself is is not well judged um it starts with this awful opening line something along the lines of 
it's well known throughout history that the laity have always harboured a nasty resentment against the clergy or something. It's absolutely bonkers opening line, um, which is just sort of makes the Pope sound incredibly partisan in favour of the clergy. It sets it up as a laity v clergy dispute, which is not a I am your holy pastor and father of all believers and this is a naughty um, temporal ruler and I'm telling him off on all our behalfs. You know, it sets it up. I mean, he phrases the argument in a really unfortunate way. And um, so uh, Philip IV reacts very badly to this um, and he uh, he stops, um, he claims emergency for emergency reasons because of the war he has to stop all monies being taken out of the kingdom so basically cuts off all papal revenue from France which is a big chunk of the papal revenue um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a clever way of, of putting Boniface VIII in a very difficult situation and uh, by um, uh, a year later in a, in a bull called uh, Etsy de Statu he, um, he backs down um, and basically says that in emergencies the temporal power can tax the um, uh, the spiritual the, the the whole land holdings of the spiritual power and he lets the temporal power judge whether or not it's an emergency so he kind of phrases it as a concession but essentially it's he kind of surrendering and um, so you know it's it's, it's not good and um, now Philip the fourth seems like a really nasty character um, and um, uh, and he um, it's hard to believe that he's inspired by great piety and the terrible things that he, he goes ahead and does um, weirdly he had as his tutor a very great theologian and philosopher of the period he's called Giles of Rome and he's one of the great um, thinkers of the high and the early part of the late Middle Ages um, he was a pupil of St Thomas Aquinas and he was a member of the Augustinian friars and he eventually becomes a bishop and later the the superior of the entire Augustinian order and um, and as I say he was the tutor of uh, Philip the fourth when he was a young man and he wrote a work on political philosophy uh, called uh, De Regimine Principum um, uh, which he dedicated to Philip the fourth and uh, which doesn't really deal with um, doesn't really deal with the spiritual power and its authority in any great detail and uh, and might even be seen as a sort of stage on the way towards the idea of an of a self-sufficient secular state so this word is, is hasn't quite emerged yet but it's in the late middle ages the word of the word state is going to emerge as a term for the um, the temporal community um, uh, and, and it the emergence of this word represents a uh, um, a, 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 the, a, a moving away in thought from the idea of a single society of the church in which there is the temporal and the spiritual power towards the idea of a of an all-sufficient community called the state ruled over by a sovereign power in this case the king of france in which there is an international agency which the, the church which operates under the sufferance of the ruler of that kingdom of that of that complete society and obviously that's very damaging uh, shift um, in, in, in thought uh, from the perspective of the church now um, uh, the so so because of the climb down of um, Boniface the eighth 
there is a there's then a kind of uh, hiatus in the conflict with the king of France, but then um, uh, the king of France arrests a, a bishop in the south of France, uh, ignoring all the uh, rules about the immunity of the clergy. Um, he arrests this bishop and charges him with treason, and he ignores all the proper procedures for the um, for what's supposed to be done in these matters. And, uh, and and it immediately reignites the dispute. It's the Bishop of Pamiers um, in 1301 reignites the dispute with Boniface VIII, and um, Boniface VIII decides that he he just can't be walked all over, and um, and he uh, he decides to uh, summon a council to Rome to discuss uh, the misbehaviour of the King of France. And a council largely of French bishops. That's a highly provocative act, but 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 an entirely appropriate act. Um, but uh, so Philip the Fourth decides. Well, this is you know this is serious, and this is this is a, an absolute. Um, uh, you know, one of us is going to walk away from this uh, defeated and broken, and it's not going to be me. So he decides to summon a rival sort of synod stroke kind of assembly of the kingdom to. Um, to attack Boniface VIII and uh, and and denounce his actions, and Philip IV's advisers forge fake documents of Boniface VIII with exaggerated claims of papal dominion over France, as if they deliberately try and confuse the idea of the the supreme spiritual power uh, holding both swords in when 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 a tyranny has occurred in the case of the temporal power with an idea that the Pope's just claiming to be the Emperor, which is why, you know, these stories about uh, these allegations that, that Boniface VIII had said, you know, I am the Caesar, I am I am the Emperor, I am Caesar, are so damaging, because this, this is what the King of France is trying to allege, that the Pope is essentially just trying to take over the government of Christendom, uh, the, gov well, the government of, the temporal government of Christendom. So, um, so uh, a certain number of bishops, uh, French bishops come to Rome, a certain number are assembled for the rival assembly of, of the King of France and uh, in Rome in uh, at the end of 1302 Boniface VIII issues this infallible bull it's uh, the sh it's it's only one page long um, it's the most resounding and strident and concise statement of the papal theory of the government of Christendom that was ever issued it's called Unam Sanctam um, it's uh, every Catholic should have it burned into their memory in letters of fire. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the uh, it is one of the most amazing papal documents of all time. It's one that and, you should proclaim on a loud bull in the middle of town. <laughs> exactly, that's right. Yes, um, I'm not sure which town. I have to think about it. Um, but um, uh, I'll just see if I can uh, I can uh, summon it up to give give you a flavour of of the text because it, it's pretty. As I say, it's pretty resounding. Um, where are we? Oops. Uh, let's have a look. Um, this is the opening. Urged by faith, we are obliged to believe and to maintain that the Church is one, holy, Catholic, and also apostolic. We believe in her firmly, and we confess with simplicity that outside of her there is neither salvation nor the remission of sins. As the spouse of the canticles proclaims, one is my dove, my perfect one, she is the only one, the chosen of her who bore her, and she represents one sole mystical body, whose head is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. 
In her then is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There had been at the time of the deluge only one ark of Noah, prefiguring the one church, which ark, having been finished to a single cubit, had only one pilot and guide, that is, Noah. And we read that outside of this ark, all that subsisted on the earth was destroyed. Right, so there's the, the opening. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so but he then goes to describe very quickly, but very, you know, very clearly, all the full theory of papal government. Um, you've got to bear in mind, like, this, the, the, uh, the, the ceremony for the coronation of the Pope with the triple tiara, uh, um, which was sort of coming in at this period, um, uh, the, when the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia places the, the tiara on the Pope's head, he says some. Um, Father of princes and kings, ruler of the world, vicar of our saviour, Jesus Christ. Boom. And then he puts the crown on the Pope's head. So this is the kind of, you know, this is a, the spirit of this uh, of this document. And he um, he lays out how in the gar in, at the Last Supper, our Lord had said, um, you know, you've got to acquire... Um, if you do, if you don't have a sword, he says to the apostles, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And the apostles say, Lord, here are two swords. And our Lord says, it is enough. And then, of course, and, and so the interpretation given to this um, uh, from sort of the sort of ninth, tenth century onwards is the is that these two swords are the spiritual and the temporal power, and they both belong ultimately to the supreme authority in the church, the successor of Saint Peter. And then when um, when uh, our Lord says to St. Peter after he chops off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, put up thy sword into thy scabbard. You think, oh, well, that's sort of a bit of a dampener on this theory. But, but Boniface, you know, he's taking his cue from St. Bernard of Clairvaux here. He, he, um, when St. Boniface say, says, oh, yeah, but he says, put up thy sword into thy scabbard, right? So it's his sword. You can't deny that the temporal sword is Peter's sword because our Lord himself says, put up thy sword into thy scabbard. Um, and so his, his interpretation of this is that although Peter and, and the clergy in general are not supposed to wield temporal power, um, they unless they absolutely have to, which is the argument for um, the paper states, um, uh, they're not supposed to wield temporal power, but it still belongs to them. So, so if the laity, um, uh, the lay ruler misuses ratione peccati, right? So if he miss for if if he sinfully misuses the temporal sword because it ultimately belongs to the, the Pope to the spiritual power the spiritual ruler can take it away from him by excommunicating him which causes him to be outside of that one society of the church and so he's no longer part of Christendom so he can't be a ruler in Christendom so as it were the temporal sword drops to the ground because the guy who's 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 uh, who's wielding it no longer exists as it were as a member of Christendom because he's been excommunicated and so then the Pope's allowed to pick it up but he's got to give it to someone else as soon as possible because he's not because he put up thy sword into thy scabbard so he's not supposed to be using it but it is his so he can reassign it now the way this theory worked is not that um, he couldn't just assign it to whoever he liked if, if the um, if the normal procedures for selecting a ruler in that country are not complicit in the wicked acts of the ruler, so say the heir to the throne isn't hasn't done the wicked things that the guy who that the, the ruler has, so so the excommunication doesn't cover him. Then it just goes to the heir to the throne. Or if um, if it's an elective uh, kingdom like uh, the Holy Roman Empire, 
uh, then it then it goes back to the electors to pick somebody new. So it doesn't mean that the Pope just gets because otherwise, if the Pope if there was a perfectly functioning mechanism for picking a ruler who wouldn't be a tyrant, and the Pope were to then pick the ruler, that would be him wielding the temporal power, which is what he's not supposed to do. So anyway, so it's the full-on theory, and it's it's very resoundingly expressed with all the arguments. As I say, all Catholics should read it. Um, and it's interesting. A lot of sort of 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 kind of soft liberal Catholics, you know, the sort of conservative end of liberalism, as it were, um, uh, don't like this document because it, you know it's it's very you know Christendomy, and uh, and it's very definitive. You know, we're, you know we're obliged to believe and to profess, right? It's not it's not um this isn't like I oh I had an interesting thought the other day, lads. Here's an encyclical. No, no, this is a kind of <laughs> as you say loudspeaker in the middle of Market Square, um, uh, all all the buttons clicked on, papal infallibility statement. Um, so it's interesting, it, it, it's, um, it's cited in Dominus Jesus, uh, the, the document that John Paul II produced about the uh, uh, unicity and salvific universality of Jesus Christ and of the Church, and it's cited in, um, uh, in uh, the, uh, a section from the middle of the, of the text, which is quite clever on his part, is cited by Pope Pius XII in uh, in Mystici Corporis Christi encyclical on the nature of the church which he produced in in World War Two, and he he and he because some people who when they try and avoid the infallible status of this text they try to claim that either only the last line is infallible or only the first line and the last line is infallible and the stuff in the middle isn't but I mean it's it's really clearly produced as a kind of creedal definitive statement the whole text which I say is only a page long. Um, is encompassed, and um, and so Pius the Twelfth, uh, with an eye to that, I think, in that in that encyclical, he refers, he quotes a line from Bang in the middle of the document, and he refers to it as the solemn teaching of our predecessor, Pope Boniface the Eighth. So he's making it clear that the whole text um, is infallible teaching. So this is like a red rag to a bull. I mean, it's really famous, this document, and, and it's, it's absolutely slamming down the gauntlet um, to the temporal power and to Philip IV in particular. And Philip IV, it becomes utterly enraged, and he, he produces all of these um, allegations, everything you could possibly think of, you know, accuse him of having usurped the papacy, you know, bumped off his predecessor, um, uh, heresy, sodomy, everything you possibly think of. He tries to throw it... At Boniface VIII, and he sends a bunch of French soldiers down to attack, but literally to attack Boniface VIII. So, um, and they find him uh, in a town called Anini um, in uh, September 1303, and um, uh, and the Pope's completely taken by surprise at the the the, the impudence and that the, 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 the King of France would be willing to do, and the King of France's representative. And, and the soldiers accompanying him break into the papal audience chamber and um, and beat Boniface VIII. I mean, he, he's he's certainly struck. How badly he's beaten is it's not completely clear. Um, uh, he he's taken captive, and um, the people of the town for a number of days. The people of the town eventually rise up and liberate him, and he manages to escape back to Rome. But he dies. So, so the the assault happened on the seventh of seventh of September, and uh, he he's liberated a few days later, and he he gets back to Rome. But he dies on the eleventh of October that year, thirteen o three. So, some people who think that he was beaten badly think that he died of his injuries. Some people think that he was just so overwhelmed by the humiliation 
and so shocked uh, that, that the King of France would be willing to do this to the Pope that he just can't cope as it were and he sort of has a mental and physical collapse and he dies as a consequence of that so it's, it's a pretty horrendous episode and it represents it, it really shows the you know that the moment of the papal government of Christendom has passed you know the papacy has now become a disputed uh, power within uh, a Christendom that that is ultimately governed by kings and emperors and and not no longer really governed by the Pope um, and and you know as I say this was this was kind of in the post um, because of uh, the breaking of the Empire he, it, it opened the opportunity to the national kings over whom he didn't have the kind of power that he had over the emperors uh, to, to step in and um, and uh, just sec ultimately this was this is going to build up towards the secularization and the destruction of Christendom but to bypass his authority so um, a, uh, a, a saintly Dominican is elected relatively quickly after the death of Boniface VIII um, uh, Pope Clement V but he, sorry, not Pope Clement V, Pope Benedict IX, um, but he um, he only uh, reigns for uh, a year or so, slightly less than a year, um, and uh, and then there's a very long conclave. They don't really know what to do. Um, uh, there's a lot of pressure from Philip IV. Uh, Philip IV is deter who's been excommunicated after what he did. In Anini, he's been excommunicated and utterly denounced by Boniface VIII before he died. So Philip IV, is, he's not finished with Boniface VIII. He's determined to destroy his reputation. He's, he wants a posthumous condemnation of Boniface VIII, like was done to Pope Honorius at the uh, Third Council of Constantinople. Uh -huh. um, but of course, Pope Honorius had actually done sketchy things on the doctrinal front. Um, he, uh, a, a posthumous condemnation of Boniface VIII would not only be unjust, but would be a catastrophic um, undermining of the doctrine, the defined doctrine uh, contained in Unam Sanctam, and of the of the true doctrine of the nature of the relations between the temporal and the spiritual power, which was being eaten away by these events. So, um, uh, lots of French pressure um, on the cardinals. Uh, the conclave lasts eleven months, um, and then finally uh, Clement V is elected Pope. He isn't a cardinal. Um, he's the Archbishop of, of, of um, Bordeaux, which is a part of France which is at that time governed by the, the King of England because he's also the Duke of Aquitaine. Um, and uh, so he's technically a subject of the King of England, albeit uh, within the nominal frontiers of the, of the Kingdom of France. He isn't a cardinal. He's French. He's in France when he's elected, so he doesn't even know he's being elected. Um, they send off, uh, you know, messengers to tell him that he's been elected Pope. So he's, he's elected in June 1305. He doesn't find out for several months afterwards that he is that he's now the Pope. Um, he uh, he intends to to go back down to Rome, but for one reason or another, which we'll get into, he doesn't go down to Rome, and no Pope is uh resides in rome there's one brief excursion many decades later but no pope resides in rome again until the uh for seven decades so this is the beginning of the the what they call the babylonian captivity of the papacy mm -hmm. now people often say the avignon papacy lasts from 1309 to 1376 
but in fact, um, uh, it's only 1309 is when they moved to Avignon. Uh, but Clement V never went to Rome, so so from 1305 until 1376, with one very brief trip to Rome later in that period, uh, the popes are absent from Rome itself. So, and this is this is obviously a terrible scandal, and um, and you know it's not permissible, uh, and it, it becomes a question at the Council of Trent that the the popes are a bit nervous about. There's 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 some move at the Council of Trent to try and say that it's contrary to divine law you know, so that even a pope can't dispense from it for a bishop not to reside in his diocese. And the popes are, are nervous about that because there's this great howling example of, of the scandalous behavior of the popes. Now, how far they're culpable, they clearly are culpable, how far they're culpable is is for this terrible act is, is not completely clear in a certain sense that you could say they're kind of taken hostage by the French kings. Um, I was asking a 14th century historian a year or so ago about this. You know, how how much do you think that they were guilty for this? Um, were they were they intentionally hanging around in France, or were they being held hostage? And uh, he said that he'd err on the side of the hostage version, but there was a lot of Stockhausen syndrome going on there. I don't know if you, you're familiar with the Stockhausen syndrome. It's the phenomenon when uh, when a hostage falls in love with the person who's taken them hostage. So, um, uh, the, Philip IV persuades Clement V to get crowned in Lyon, rather than go back to Rome and get crowned where he's supposed to be. And, um, uh, and um, at, the, at the coronation, uh, Clement V creates nine new French cardinals uh, and this is not good um, so there's already too many French cardinals now he's created nine new French cardinals and it's not long before I mean by the time that the Avignon captivity ends there are no Italian cardinals all the cardinals are French so I mean so so the papacy is completely taken over by by France um, in fact um, I mean uh, we, we'll deal with this when we get to the Council of Constance but after the the Italians finally get back control of of the papacy, no Frenchman is ever elected pope again, uh, for, to, to the present day. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's the the, the and not, never allowing that to happen ever again. And sorry, Rennie. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, so so it's pretty bad. And um, now um, the. Uh, um, you got a, a one thing you got to look at, though. Of course, is in fact that the popes, for 150, 200 years beforehand, had had really, very, surprisingly, rarely been in Rome. For huge chunks of their papacy, they'd not been in Rome, and for significant chunks of their papacy, they'd not even been in the papal states. Um, and the reason for that is it was so violent. Um, uh, it was so easy for them to lose control of Rome. There was all sorts of politics among the population of Rome themselves, rival families who hadn't won out in the last papal election, uh, anti-popes created by emperors who they were quarrelling with. So the popes, I mean, they'd, they'd, it's, it is shocking, it's absolutely terrible, the Avignon papacy, but it's also, it was a longer time coming than, than perhaps people realised. And when it did happen, as often happens with these kind of calamities, um, uh, people don't, didn't realize it was happening. They didn't realize that the Pope was not going to go to Rome for 70 years uh, when they elected Clement V. That was not the plan. Um, it just, they sort of, initially they sleep, sleepwalked into it. Um, uh, and it's very interesting, again, with a lot of these things, it, it shows you that 
the crazy um, idea of sort of pseudo infallibility of popes of the prudential judgments of the popes, you know, absolutely has to be set aside. It's it's unsustainable. I mean, for seventy years, contrary to divine law, the popes did not visit their own diocese, right? So, so popes can make serious and sustained poor prudential decisions, um, and you know. One has to bear that in mind. Um, uh, so the um, uh, anyway, so um, uh, Philip the Fourth is keen to get uh, Boniface the Eighth posthumously condemned. Clement the Fifth is scared of Philip the Fourth. Now Clement the Fifth, in fact, attended Boniface the Eighth's rival, well, his original council in Rome that that, that Philip the Fourth created his rival assembly too. And um, so he wasn't, uh, he wasn't completely spineless, but he wasn't, uh, he was pretty vacillating. And, um, and he was, uh, he was um, quite concerned uh, about the situation he was in. And uh, uh, Philip IV was, was, you know, the original conflict had been caused by the fact that he was desperate for cash. He'd done a number of nasty, uh, other nasty things, like he, he, he expelled all the Jews from France. Um, uh, and he and he he cancelled all the debts that the Jews owed, and he stole all their property, um, and uh, and so now he decided that he was going to steal the property of the Knights Templar. Now the Knights Templar are one of the two were the two great military orders that had defended the Kingdom of Jerusalem. These are religious orders of of knights um, who are not clerics; they have chaplains, but they're not themselves clerics. They're they're lay they're lay people in the sense of not being not being clerics, but they are religious they're sworn to poverty chastity and obedience and to fight to defend the holy land from the muslims and um the first of these orders was the hospitallers they've been founded originally just to uh, provide accommodation and tend to the sicknesses and injuries of people visiting the holy land but eventually they developed into a military order which physically defended against assault the people in the holy land and and one of the big problems was even after the founding of the kingdom of jerusalem is that the you know a large majority of the population of the holy land was were, were muslim in outside of the cities and uh, and they weren't particularly enthusiastic about the crusaders albeit in fact there's some evidence they preferred being ruled by the crusaders than being ruled by their muslim rulers but nevertheless they thought the christian pilgrims were fair game and um and they were willing to attack and do horrible things to enslave murder etc um uh, rob and uh, molest uh, pilgrims coming to the holy land and um, there was one particularly terrible um, attack on a, a, a group of several hundred pilgrims who were going from, in the second decade of the 12th century, were going down to um, uh, Jericho uh, to, to bathe in the Jordan, having visited Jerusalem, and they were very badly attacked and many terrible things happened to them. And this inspired the creation of a second military religious order, uh, the Knights of the Temple. They became known as the Knights of the Temple because the King of Jerusalem allowed them to make use of the Alaska, Mo Alaska Mosque as their headquarters. Now, the Alaska Mosque is on top of the Temple Mount, the Temple Platform, and it's one of the two uh, great Islamic buildings on that platform that were built there after the Muslims captured Jerusalem. Uh, the other one is the Dome of the Rock, which probably stands on top of the actual spot where the Ark of the Covenant used to rest in Solomon's Temple. And um, so it's, the medievals weren't entirely clear, it seems, that these were, subs were later buildings. They seem to think that they actually were uh, the Temple of Solomon. Um, so they became known as the Knights of the Temple. Um, 
and uh, they they became extremely popular because people obviously were very concerned about preserving the Crusader states, but they also didn't. Um, they it was a big thing. There's this this myth grew up in the 19th century and early part of the 20th century that people went on crusade in order to enrich themselves. That it was often younger sons who didn't have any inheritance who needed to make make you know make their fortune in the East. That's been utterly refuted over the last half century. It's very clear that um, you bankrupted yourself by going on crusade. You probably die. If you didn't die, you'd probably be bankrupt anyway. So the number of people who, and if, if you did end up with some kind of territory or land holding in the East, it would probably be greatly inferior to anything that you, that you sold in order to be able to go there in the first place. So nobody was going there pretty much unless they were deeply misled. <laughs> Nobody was going there for, for reasons of, of personal aggrandizement. And uh, so a lot of them would go home. Most crusaders would go there, do a bit of fighting, visit the holy places. They would have redeemed their vow and they'd go home. Uh, so, so you've got most of them die. The ones who don't die go bankrupt. The ones who do get land get a greatly inferior land. And most of the ones don't get land, they go home. So the big problem is 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 the kings of Jerusalem are stuck with like well who's actually going to defend this when there isn't a crusade on we can't constantly be relying on tourists to defend the frontiers of the kingdom but nobody wants to move there they prefer the nice little farms back in France to uh, the more challenge greater challenges of agriculture in um, in uh, in the Middle East so um, so they, they the kingdom of Jerusalem becomes increasingly dependent on the Templars and the Hospitallers as, as the sort of special forces to actually defend because they're they're sort of permanently there and so people appreciate this so back in the west they um it becomes very uh, a, a very fashionable cause to donate money uh, and lands to the templars and the hospitalers um uh, to maintain their position in the in in the holy land and uh, the Templars are particularly taken under the wing of St. Bernard, who's one of the greatest orators of all time. And so they become the, the biggest deal of the two of them. And uh, so, so they're, they're, they're very wealthy. They're, they're, they've got a huge mystique around them. They're supposed to be the ultimate warriors. Um, and uh, and they, have, they, have te they have priories all over, um, all over the West. There's still a, a London underground station called the Temple, or called Temple, which is where the House of the Knights Templar was. You can go and see it because it was taken over by, by the lawyers, and so they still have it there. Um, and I think there's a Temple metro station in Paris as well. And um, uh, so the um, uh, now, in the course of 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 of, of exploding in importance and significance and becoming this huge order with this great mystique and prestige attached to them and enormous wealth, um, the Templars began to offer this service to people who wanted to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land because, as I say, it's very dangerous and you're, you're quite likely going to get bankrupted by doing this pilgrimage. So one of the things that they do is they, um, is they will take your money off you. In, so, for example, I, I, I did my doctorate at the University of Aberdeen and uh, I uh, often used to go to a lovely little church, Catholic church in Aberdeen called St. Peter's, uh, which is at the end of, of, of the sort of main street in Aberdeen, Union Street. And um, St. Peter's stands just next to where the house 
Prestige in the Middle Ages, and uh, it's now pretty much a car park. But um, uh, but they would have had lands around Aberdeen. They would have administered them from that house in uh, in Aberdeen in the Middle Ages in the north of Scotland. And if you were a Scottish nobleman and you wanted to go on crusade or you wanted to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, you would go to the Knights Templar and you would deposit with, with them your gold, and they would give you a credit note. Uh, saying that you deposited your gold, and you would then go to you go to Jerusalem. You'd fight your way through. You know, you'd avoid all the perils and the, and you get to Jerusalem, and you go to the Knights Templar in Jerusalem. And you hand over to them your credit note from the host, from the Templars in Aberdeen, and they'll give you the equivalent sum in gold. So it was it was a very helpful service. However, of course, they legitimately levied a certain charge for uh, the performance of this service. And um, uh, and uh, and then eventually, because they were tax exempt and exempt for the, they were a universal exempt religious order. They're tax exempt for the reason we talked about church property, and um, and they're exempt from the authority of the local bishop and from the authority of the temporal ruler. So people would actually deposit their stuff with the Templars, not because they were going to the Holy Land, but just because they wanted to put it somewhere safe where the temporal tax man couldn't get his hands on it. So they they went from running travelers' checks to running deposit accounts and to charging legitimate charges on this and uh, and then eventually people started saying well couldn't I just get some cash from you without actually having deposited any with you and I'll give you I'll pay you back later and you can levy a charge for that service as well and it's getting closer and closer and closer to being the condemned practice of usury of lending money at interest and um so eventually, huge numbers of, of significant temporal figures, including the King of France, became massively indebted to the Templars. Now, the um, uh, the Master General, or the, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, uh, Guillaume de Beaujeu, um, uh, died sword in hand at the fall of Acre in 1291 doing what he was supposed to do well he, he wasn't supposed to lose but he was certainly supposed to fight to the death to defend Acre and there was a quite a sort of um, a, a protracted uh, siege of the Templar house because uh, various civilians had taken refuge there and the Templars refused to leave and the Muslims were supposed to give them safe conduct uh, in exchange for them agreeing to leave and then they reneged on the safe conduct and and then so the Templars managed to rescue the people before they could be enslaved by the Muslims and then the Muslims tried to undermine the walls in order to get in and then finally they did undermine the walls and the Muslims charged in in order to murder and enslave the civilians and the Templars but they'd undermined the walls so well the entire building collapsed on top of the civilians, the Templars and the Muslims and they were all killed. So it was a slightly bizarre but rather dramatic way to go. And uh, uh, and yeah, the, the last, uh, the last, uh, well, not the last, but the, the last to to reign in the Holy Land, Grand Master of the Knights Templar died in the battle to defend Acre. So you know, it seems pretty heroic, but you got to remember from from what we saw with Celestine V, there's this moral panic sweeping through Christendom. They want to blame somebody. Who? Why is God angry with us? Why have we lost control of the Kingdom of Jerusalem? What's going on? We invested a fortune in the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller, and they've lost the Holy Land. So you know what's happened to our money, and um, uh, so the, the, the Knights Hospitaller, um, you know, were equally in trouble, right? The, you know, the the the, the popularity. Uh, was was and the mystique were were greatly damaged. You know there was anger and people wanted to know what had gone on and what had gone wrong. 
and um, and King France owed them a lot of money. Now the Knights Hospitaller uh, had a tactical disagreement with the Knights Templar. The Knights Hospitaller wanted to do kind of guerrilla, um, uh, chunk by chunk. Uh, fight for every piece of land, try and get a little bit back tactics, where uh, in terms of trying to restore the Christian possessions in the Holy Land. Whereas the Knights Templar were like, no, no, this isn't going to work. What we need is a massive coalition. The King of France, King of England, Holy Roman Emperor, Papacy will come along, will be the special forces. But it's not going to work on this kind of incremental amateur basis. That's That hasn't worked. We need a massive, overwhelming, huge invasion of the Holy Land. To, to recreate a defensible kingdom of Jerusalem, you know, Edessa, Damascus, not just Jerusalem and, and Tyre and, and Tripoli and, and Acre. We need the whole whole kit and caboodle, um, and then it will be defensible. So there's this big difference. Now, one of the consequences of this tactical disagreement between the Templars and the Hospitallers is that the Templars aren't doing very much, because they're like, well, there's no point just doing little bits here and there. We need to negotiate a massive crusade, and then we'll be the special forces and the vanguard, and it'll be great. Whereas the Hospitallers are doing little bits and pieces here and there that they can, and one of the major things that they do in this precisely the right moment for them politically is that between 1306 and 1310 they managed to seize control of the island of Rhodes. Now they're actually seizing it off the Byzantines so it's not terribly edifying but at least they are doing something and they managed to get hold of a prestigious naval headquarters for the for the um, for the Knights Hospitaller and to this day um, they are known, because the Knights Hospitaller still exist, as the sovereign military order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, Rhodes and Malta. Mm -hmm. And for a long time they were known as the as the Knights of Rhodes, because that was their, their theocratic HQ, was Rhodes. Now this is just the right moment, right, at 1306, to have started doing this, because Clement V's been elected in, in 1305, he's kind of bit kidnapped by the King of France, He's stuck there in France, and at his coronation, Philip IV says, basically, he turns up, obviously, and he says, because in, in France, and he turns up and he says, okay, two matters of business, Your Holiness. Number one, I want Boniface VIII posthumously condemned for heresy, sorcery, sodomy, cannibalism. I don't think he actually accuses him of cannibalism, but I mean, everything you can think of. Um, and, uh, and I want... Um, and, and I've discovered terrible allegations against the Templars, who, as it happens, are unbelievably wealthy and who I owe a huge sum of money. Um, uh, so, so, so uh, Philip IV claims that, that the Templars uh, have become completely corrupt and wicked, and that they've become a secret sort of cult inside the church, that they, they've introduced a ceremony whereby they repudiate Christ upon becoming a knight, spit on a crucifix, um, that they worship an idol of some kind of strange head, of Muhammad, um, uh, uh, that they um, that they're engaging in sodomy and sorcery and all sorts of things, and that and and this provides a convenient explanation for why the Crusades have have gone horribly wrong, right? Because God's really angry with the Templars, so that that's the problem. So he comes up with all these allegations, um, uh, the um, and and he's kind of cleverly running the two allegations simultaneously. So he, he says, he's saying, if Clement V doesn't cooperate with his uh, attack on the Templars, uh, he pushes further the attempt to get um, Boniface VIII posthumously condemned as a heretic. So Clement V is, is trying to play for time and desperately avoid condemning Boniface VIII as a heretic, but he's also, he's pretty sure that the Templars are innocent. Now, um, 
1307, um, uh, and, and as I say, the Templars are the easy target because the, because the hospitalers have, have, have helpfully done something impressive and are doing something impressive while all this is going on in their attempt to conquer Rhodes. So people can't accuse them of not doing anything, the hospitalers. So, that, so, the, so in 1307, in a kind of sweeping, simultaneous attack, sort of FBI, Food and Drugs Administration style, uh, all the Templar houses are, are broken into, and the 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 master, the Grandmaster of the Templars, and and all the Templars in France are arrested, and um, and then Philip the Fourth subjects them to horrendous tortures. Basically, he's just got a list of stuff. You're guilty of this, and we're going to carry on torturing you until you admit you're guilty of this. So you know, sort of twelve hours later, the the, the sort of the, the two fingers left of the Templar signs the uh, the confession, right? So it's pretty brutal and pretty horrendous. And the vast majority of modern historians are are, are convinced that the Templars were not guilty of any of this stuff. Um, uh, and one of the signs they're not guilty is that um, uh, they, nobody else, uh, the Pope is bullied into getting everybody else in Christendom to arrest them and um, and to investigate the matter. And uh, where there's a little bit of torture, there's some. So, so you've got to distinguish Roman law permits torture. In fact, in some cases, uh, classical Roman law required torture. But, um, but the, and in those areas where uh, the legal system is based on that, they, they, they allow torture. But this is, uh, I'm not trying to endorse torture here, but this is, this is proper judicial torture focused on finding out what the truth of the matter is, not focused on getting a particular result in order to avoid paying your debts. Right. So in those areas, there's, there's slight hints of possible guilt, but, but overwhelmingly uh, they conclude that the charges are false and that there's no evidence, or at least they conclude there's no evidence whether or not the charges are false. Um, only in France, where the, where the torture is focused on getting a particular result and is not uh, is not judicial proper judicial torture um, uh, does it do, do, do they overwhelmingly uh, say that they're guilty and as soon as the torture stops the vast majority of them uh, say that they're innocent um, and withdraw their confessions um, and in Aragon and England which don't allow torture um, uh, as part of the judicial process uh, they they don't find any evidence against them at all and there's a sort of um, Profoundly embarrassing exchange of letters between Edward the First and Clement the Fifth, where Clement the Fifth kind of did you torture them, and Edward the First's kind of like, well, we don't really do that. And I mean, Edward the First was not squeamish, you know. As I say, Braveheart is horrendously historically inaccurate film, but its depiction of Edward the First as a very scary man is not really inaccurate in that sense. Um, and uh, so, but he's like, well, no, we didn't torture them because you know that we don't do that kind of thing. He's like, well, torture them, and, and so I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's not good. But the, but I mean, even even in the places where they do torture them, they don't really find any convincing evidence in their guilt. So, um, uh, Philip IV responds by ramping up the campaign against Boniface VIII. So, Clement V basically agrees to summon an ecumenical council to deal with the question. So, that's why the Council of Vienne is summoned. Um, uh, the, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, it's ecumenicity is not to be doubted, but, uh, but it's certainly Philip the Fourth did stuff that could, you know, could have put started putting a case together because he, 
he tried to veto certain bishops coming and in the end every bishop in Christendom was allowed it seems to either come or at least send a procurator someone to vote on their behalf uh, but uh, not every bishop in Christendom was actually allowed to come. So often in these councils you'll have procurators on behalf of important bishops like say the Eastern Patriarchs. But this is an un a very unusual case in which you actually weren't supposed to come, they weren't allowed to come, they just had to send a procurator on their on their behalf. So, and that's partly because Philip IV is trying to make sure that it doesn't go in any direction he doesn't like. So the council opens in uh, in Vienne, in France, in 1311. Um, uh, they they begin. There's an investigation, and the Templars begins. They examine both the bishops and the Holy See. Uh, in parallel, they examine uh, the proceedings from the existing investigations, both in France and elsewhere in Christendom. Um, they're not happy. Uh, they they conclude that there isn't sufficient evidence for a condemnation. They want. Uh, to, to run their own investigation. They want the Master General Jacques de Molay, the, master, the, the Grand Master rather, of the Knights Templar, to be able to speak in person. Obviously, you know, it's a, a, a requirement of natural justice that you shouldn't be tried in your absence, especially if you're willing to appear in your own defence. And, uh, and the bishops obviously want this to happen. The Pope wants it to happen, though he's very coy about it because he's terrified of the King of France. Um, the King of France is hanging around with, you know, with, with heavy, heavy soldiery um, uh, in, in the near vicinity of Vienne to make sure everybody feels the pressure. Um, and so the final conclusion which the, um, which the Pope and the Council, really the Pope, with the acquiescence of the Council reach, is that they uh, abolish the Knights Templar by an administrative act, so the first but not by a judicial decision. So the, the actual document which is, which is read to the Council and acquiesced in by the Council, which abolishes the Templars, um, it, uh, it starts with a huge list of all the terrible things they've been accused of and sort of insinuates by its tone that this is the reason for the loss of Jerusalem. There's lots of quoting of passages from the Old Testament about, you know, we're in terrible shape because we've offended the Lord and all that kind of stuff. So it sounds like it's going to go towards, I, I, I don't know whether Clement V thought hopefully the King of France would get bored and not get to the end of the document, but uh, it that sounds like it's, it's going to go to, and, and we find them guilty and we dissolve them for their wickedness and terrible stuff. And then it kind of, after all this thunderous uh, Old Testament stuff, uh, which sounds like he, he's going to find them guilty on all counts. He says, but we haven't really been able to investigate it properly, so who knows whether they're guilty or innocent. So as an administrative act, we're just suppressing them because their reputation is now so completely ruined that they couldn't do anything helpful anyway. So we're just going to squish them administratively, and whether they're guilty or not, we don't know. Uh, for everlasting memory, Clement V uh, and the Council of Vienne. So it, it's, it's utterly shoddy and, and, and extremely dodgy. Um, and uh, but you know it's legally valid uh, religious orders are creations of the holy see mm -hmm. and i mean in the sense of international exempt organizations are creations of the holy see so the holy see can destroy them and so 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 it did and um and uh, they were and and philip the 4th was utterly vicious uh, to them he he um he uh, basically when they the, when the torture was suspended and they withdrew their confessions presumably because they were false confessions uh, he then says right you now because one of the things they were accused of was heresy and apostasy so he says right you now relapsed heretic so i can burn you at the stake and this is all completely dodgy because it's not supposed to these judgments do, do not belong to the temporal power so but he has uh, all these templars 
who withdraw their confessions once the torture stops. He has them all burnt at the stake. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's really, really, I mean, on the assumption, which seems overwhelmingly probable, that they were innocent, and certainly they were not given due process, so they were not legitimately convicted, whether they were innocent or guilty, but as I say, it's overwhelmingly likely they are innocent. Uh, their fate was was horrific, and um, uh, and a legend grew up that Jacques de Molay, the last master general, had sort of screamed a curse against um, against the King of France and possibly the Pope uh, from the pyre as he was being burnt at the stake for for being a relapsed heretic. And uh, both both Pope and King died within one year of his execution. But it seems as if the curse is apocryphal. But um. So uh, one of the people who was present at the Council of Vienne was uh, Giles of Rome, this great pupil of St. Thomas Aquinas, although he, he, isn't, he doesn't follow St. Thomas in everything, and he, he ends up as the founder of his own school, uh, the Egedians, because Egedius is Giles in Latin. And uh, he, he, he's so, that the, the, the Augustinian friars are so enthusiastic about him that, uh, that many years previously they'd, in one of their general chapters, they're so like, "Yay, we've got one of the biggies! We've got the big intellectual figures like the other guys." Like, um, so, so they said they they passed this decree saying that all Augustinians had to follow the opinions of Giles of Rome in everything that he'd, he'd written so far, and in anything that he would subsequently write, which is completely crazy. <laughs> um, so, so absurd position, but it's part of the um, phenomenon which causes great harm to Christendom. All the uh, of the kind of football team religious order uh, which is that um that the religious orders they become incredibly uh, sort of competitive with each other and everyone's expected to hold the opinions of the most famous theologian in that order regardless of what they actually personally think and this really damages the magisterium because i mean uh, you know, there's lots of things like the Immaculate Conception and um, and the, the proper Catholic doctrine of predestination, which don't get, uh, uh, predestination doesn't get resolved for centuries longer. Than, sorry, um, the Immaculate Conception doesn't get defined for centuries longer than it than it needed to, because of the hostility between the Dominicans and the Franciscans, mm-hmm. and uh, and and the question of predestination has never been properly resolved uh, because of the competitiveness between the Dominicans and the Jesuits. Although it's not just the Dominicans in that case, the other older religious orders all disagrees with the Jesuits but um, but this this has been a, a great harm to uh, this creation of these schools which are kind of quasi football teams intellectual football teams and uh, and Giles of Rome was a beneficiary of this now as I said earlier Giles of the Rome had written this uh, work on the government of rulers for um, for uh, Philip the fourth but then later on um, during the great controversy over Unam Sanctam he'd written this uh, this very important work De Ecclesiastica Potestate on the ecclesiastical power um, which is a, a sort of a book-length defense of the doctrine of Unam Sanctam and uh, there's a nice uh, bilingual edition done by a guy called Dyson uh, as far as I know unrelated to the vacuum clean manufa- cleaner manufacturer um, uh, which you can buy at a reasonably affordable price last time I checked um, <laughs> and it's it's well worth reading and, and there's a lot of people think that Charles of Rome actually wrote Unam Sanctam and certainly um, you know uh, uh, the the on the ecclesiastical power comes off as sort of like you know you know like it's Star Wars the illustrated dictionary. Well, uh, you know you, you kind of uh, um, on the ecclesiastical power is like you know Unam Sanctam the illustrated companion and guide. Um, uh, and so so it's, yeah, it's well worth reading. Um, but uh, and as I say, he was actually the superior of the. Um, of the Augustinians as well, but he uh, interestingly, Giles of Rome is at Vienne, and he seems to um, he seems to have thought the Templars were guilty 
And he wrote a book called Contra Exemptos, which is particularly striking because, as I say, he's the superior of an international exempt religious order. But And, and it's very striking um, given modern difficulties we've had with all these abuse problems and things uh, that he... Um, uh, that he, um, the, the work is, bla he assumes the guilt of the Templars and he, he blames it on the fact that the Holy See has been going around creating all of these exempt religious orders. And essentially what, what the Holy See does by that is, is make them, as it were, monks of the Diocese of Rome so that they're subject to the oversight and uh, disciplinary power only of the Pope rather than of the local diocesan bishop. And Giles argues that, um, that this is a recipe for disaster because the Popes are just, it's attractive to the Popes because they, that means they have people who are very loyal to them all over the church. But it, it's, it's a recipe for disaster because they don't, uh, the, the Popes are just not capable of exercising that kind of supervision over people dispersed over the entire world. And, um, I have a friend who's involved in a, an investigative committee um, uh, which is looking into various abuse problems um, uh, and, and among them things to do with uh, rogue ecclesiastical institutions and um, I was just reading a year or so ago about Giles's arguments and uh, and my friend rang me up and um, and she was she, she started uh, complaining about this very phenomenon that that, that that the Holy See is not properly equipped to supervise these organizations, you know, and, and Giles basically says there should only be a few of them so that it's actually manageable, which again is echoing the sentiment of, of Lateran Fall that, that, um, that there shouldn't be any new forms of religious life and, and they got this idea about um, the four holy rules of Augustine, Francis, Benedict and Basil. Um, so, uh, yeah, I must say, given both the doctrinal and, in some cases, moral collapse of so many uh, religious communities in the last 60, 70 years, um, uh, it's, uh, it's hard not to sympathise with Giles, but then it's mysterious because, the, because of the overwhelming weight of evidence that, um, that the Templars seem to have been innocent, so I don't know. It's probably going to remain a mystery. Um, uh, the um, probably Philip the Fourth was intending to steal all the Templars' land. Uh, Clement V tries to outflank him on that front and make sure that the land is reassigned for the purpose for which it was given, so that the land is given to and um, is given to the Hospitallers, who are supposed to be doing the same things as the Templars were. Um, probably Philip the Fourth wouldn't have allowed that to happen. He never hands over any of the land, but he dies a year later. So, so as a consequence, because of the fortuitous death of this nasty king, um, in fact, not only does he die, but within one generation, his entire, uh, the, the, the direct Capetian French dynasty becomes extinct, which eventually leads to the um, Hundred Years' War between England and France, which is a uh, another reason for the popularity of the apocryphal story of Jacques de Molay's curse from the from the pyre. Um, but but because of his death, the land does largely get properly reassigned to hospitalers, so it's not completely wasted. Um, and the hospitalers do important and good stuff, albeit they don't reconquer the Holy Land uh, all the way up until I'm sure they still do important and good stuff. Um, uh, but uh, but all the way up to on a crusading front of one sort or another, all the way up to the 18th century, they they're still in possession of Malta, and they famously uh, prevent Malta from falling into the hands of Islam at various occasions. In the meantime, although they lose roads, sadly, um, so uh, the, there are various. Um, uh, 
of the usual kind of canonical measures taken by the council, like uh, Second Council of Lyon, the Pope asks for reports on problems in the church and then the, the bishops try and deal with it. Um, but there's uh, two other very important doctrinal things which they do, uh, one connected to Charles of Rome and one connected probably to the disgrace of the Templars. The first is that uh, there is a, um, uh, a philosopher and theologian called Peter John Olivi, uh, who lived from um, a 12... 47 to 1298, uh, and he had uh, denied um, that the intellectual soul is the form of the body. Now this is a, uh, now this is, it was actually, um, most people nowadays think that um, they have a silly, false understanding of what the church means by the soul. They think it means some kind of glowy, disembodied mind, angel thing that kind of dwells inside your body as if it was a machine. This is uh, completely false, false to the scriptures and false to the, the perennial philosophy, the true Catholic philosophical tradition. Um, but there had been a certain degree of, of unclarity about the precise nature of the soul although everything tended in this direction uh, but it is really saint thomas who properly um uh clarifies the nature of the soul um in his writings his commentary on aristotle's de anima and his treatise on on the soul in the first part of the summa theologiae and um but uh, this this theologian olivi he um he had denied that the that the human intellect was the form of the body so so when you say the form of the body it's it means that that um the humanness that the soul is united to the matter of the body as the humanness of 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 the man is united to the the stuff as it were that the man is made of so so like the like the if you've got a wooden triangle you have as it were the form of triangularity and the matter of wood i mean this is a horrendous oversimplification but anyway um uh, um and uh, so in the same way you have the form of man is united to the matter which makes this individual man this individual man uh, although scotists would get very upset at me saying it that way but anyway um and um uh, so the um uh, and he had denied that the properly rational soul uh, the rational faculties of the soul of the nature of their rationality informed uh, the matter of the body yeah this would take 12 podcasts to explain properly but anyway um uh, but uh, as a as this uh, giles managed to arrange for this opinion to be condemned and as a result uh, um solemnly defined dogmatically uh, that the soul is the form of the body, which is quite important. Now, there are various, um, very important for, for Catholic anthropology, and it shows what a high level, albeit, you know, we're in a period of decline, but from a very high point. So so the intellectual life of the church is at a very high level at this point, so that you, you can hardly imagine an ecumenical council in later centuries defining something so philosophical. But, but, but that's a sign, just like, you know, it's a sign of our present decline that no one's been back to the moon since the 90s. 1970s. So it's a sign of, of general ecclesiastical decline that some um, that, that questions of this of this sublimity are not are not considered by ecumenical councils in the magisterium anymore. But uh, interestingly, it probably gets a lot of people treat that as essentially just defining St Thomas's doctrine of the soul. There are other schools in 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 the church among this kind of football team 
a religious order, schools of philosophy and theology, who would not like that because they don't like St. Thomas's Doctrine, so particularly this dispute between the, the Scotus and the Thomists about whether or not matter is the principle of individuation. Um, but um, uh, probably it gets closer to being a definition of St. Thomas's understanding of the soul uh, on account of an earlier definition, which people have probably largely forgotten about, of the Fourth Council of Constantinople, which, if you search back in your memory, defined that there is only one human soul. So, um, so anyway, so it's a very important definition, and it's cited in the Catechism and various places. There's an interesting discussion of this question by uh, Joseph Ratzinger in his Eschatology textbook, which he wrote before he was Pope, quite a long time before he was Pope. Um, so, uh, yes, and the other definition is that it is a heresy to deny that usury is mortally sinful. So lots of ecumenical councils actually deal with the question of usury, but mostly they deal with it as, as large, with it, by implication doctrinal, because they say lots of thunderous doctrinal sounding things about it, but when they actually get to the kind of meat and potatoes of it, it's usually a disciplinary provision. So Vienna is unique in that it, it dogmatically defines that anyone who denies that usury is a mortal sin is a heretic. And uh, that's very important for understanding Catholic doctrine on economics and Catholic social teaching. Because in fact, uh, um, the, the, once you understand why usury is immoral, it, it's very helpful in understanding uh, a huge amount of the economic parts of Catholic social teaching. And if you leave that out, it just becomes a rather woolly and arbitrary series of sentiments. Um, but once you reinsert the dogma that, uh, of, of the immorality of usury, it, it, it kind of, everything clicks into place and it becomes much more systematic and, and comprehensible. So there we are. Um, uh, that's the Council of Vienne. So it does two very important doctrinal extremely wicked and shameful disciplinary thing and destroys one of the greatest religious orders in the history of the church and uh, while not having the courage, you know, like dare one say it, Pilate, you know, I have nothing to do with the death of these innocent Templars, it says, looking the other way as they scream uh, amidst the terrible flames. So, uh, yeah. So it's not edifying, but it did do some important things, and unfortunately it's kind of the curtain raiser on the 70-year-long catastrophic exile of the papacy in France. Next up is the Council of Constance, right? That's right, the other end of the catastrophe. <laughs> Who said that there's no problems before in the 1960s? <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, appreciate it, man. Have a good one. <laughs>